Hey, podcast family, welcome to another episode. In our commitment to always provide the most up-to-date and current information, in this session, we're going to summarize a brand new key systematic review about postpartum home blood pressure monitoring. Does it work? Does it not work? Does it reduce severe maternal mortality? I mean, that's really what we're trying to do, right? Make patients better. But does it work? This new systematic review by Dale Steele et al. just came out as an EPUB that's an electronic publication ahead of print on June the 13th, 2023. Now, as point of reference, we're recording this on June the 14th, 2023. How's that for a quick turnaround? But this is really a very informative publication because I'm not sure if you do this, but we do this in our residency program. In those patients who have chronic hypertension or any hypertensive disorder pregnancy, once they're monitored postpartum, then we send them home and we give them instructions. Check your blood pressure at home. Call if something is funky. Here are the numbers to watch out for. But is that really data-driven? Now, I'm not saying it's, a, it's not a good idea. It's okay to do it. But is it evidence-based? So we can get into this discussion, all right? So there's conservative care, and then there's being evidence-based. You'd hope, you'd hope that they are the same thing, but they're not necessarily the same thing at all. So in this episode, we're going to cover postpartum home blood pressure monitoring. Should patients be doing this or not if we're going to follow evidence-based recommendations? So we're going to tackle this. This is out of Obstetrics and Gynecology in the Green Journal. And as a little freebie, we're going to give a quick summary about some very, very high-impact publications that came out just last year that we reported on called Bump 1 and Bump 2. Two, which had to do with home blood pressure monitoring antepartum. So we're going to summarize that. We're going to summarize blood pressure control in the postpartum period and then get to the systematic review. Here we go. This is Cade. I'm a third-year medical student at Texas A&M University. I'm Kimia. I'm an undergraduate student at Texas A&M University. And, and this, this is, is Clinical, Clinical Pearls. Pearls. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This whole concept of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy really is a big deal. I mean, this is a big bucket. Hypertensive disorders of pregnancy can affect about 10% of pregnancies, and it encompasses a whole spectrum of issues, from pre-existing chronic hypertension to gestational hypertension to proteinuric hypertension in pregnancy, aka preeclampsia, and that's whether it's with or without severe features. It includes eclampsia and HELP syndrome. And historically, I trained with this, maybe you did as well, it was once believed that any hypertensive disorder of pregnancy was just cured by delivery of the placenta. We now know that that's not the case at all, and that what happens in pregnancy doesn't stay in pregnancy. It's understood that hypertensive disorders of pregnancy can persist, they can worsen, or they can develop de novo after birth. And beyond the immediate postpartum period, 
Data suggests that individuals with pregnancies complicated by hypertensive disorders have a higher risk of chronic hypertension and a higher lifelong risk of cardiovascular complications. I'm thankful for low-dose aspirin and the data that exists in terms of reduction in the rates of preeclampsia for those who are at risk. Now, we've talked about this in the past on previous episodes. I'm in the camp that unless you've got some wicked contraindication to low-dose aspirin, I think everybody should get that. So I am in the camp of universal low-dose aspirin. I know it doesn't work for everybody. There is something called aspirin resistance. I don't want to get into that now. It's a little weird. It's a little controversial. Maybe we can talk about that in another podcast. But the idea is just because a patient takes low-dose aspirin does not mean uh, de facto 100% that she's not going to get preeclampsia, right? That's just not the case. But it's to reduce the risk of developing it, especially in those that are at high risk. Now, ideally, we would have a way to prevent this at start. Now, remember that all the leading theories of preeclampsia have to do with placental development at the time of the cytotrophoblast as it invades into the myometrium, as it goes into the spiral arteries. So think about that podcast family. I mean, if this is correct, which is a leading theory, uh, and there's biochemical evidence to prove this, the programming for a patient to get preeclampsia or any hypertensive disorder pregnancy starts at implantation before the patient even knows she's pregnant, for heaven's sakes. I mean, wow, think about that. So that's why when people talk about we have to find a way to absolutely prevent this from happening. How? How do we do that when this starts so early on in the process of pregnancy with abnormal invasion of the spiral arteries, which triggers inflammatory substances and the uh, cyclooxygenase thromboxane imbalance, and we go down the chain uh, of pathophysiology at the moment of, of, of implantation? I don't know if there's a way to do that. So the best that we have right now is do things downstream like low-dose aspirin. And I hope, and I'm sure of it, that we'll have other things down the road that are either equal to low-dose aspirin efficacy or even better because we got to get this thing knocked down as much as possible. This is why people have paid attention and tried to focus on other tools, ancillary methods to try to catch aggravation of blood pressure early on like home blood pressure monitoring. So before we get to home blood pressure monitoring, self-monitoring of, of BPs in the postpartum interval, which is what this new systematic review is tackling, let's just briefly touch on that same subject as it applies to antepartum. We're not going to go through bump one and bump two in detail because I've already done that. But I do want to give everyone a quick reminder about what those studies are found uh, and where you can find that in our archive because I want to cover this holistically, meaning before delivery and then focus on this new literature, which is on postpartum. All right. So let's cover bump one and bump two very quickly. All right, podcast family, we covered bump one and bump two on May the 4th, 2022. And just like we're doing with this episode right now, we released that review of bump one and bump two just 24 hours after it was released in JAMA. So JAMA published those two separate RCTs on May the 3rd, and then we released this episode on May the 4th. All right, so you can go back to the archive. Very quickly, bump one was to assess if home blood pressure monitoring in women at risk of developing a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy to see if that it worked, to see if they could catch a hypertensive issue uh, rather than just waiting for clinic evaluations. 
Bump 2 was another RCT that looked to see if home monitoring of blood pressure in patients who already had some hypertensive disorder of pregnancy, whether that was chronic hypertension or gestational hypertension or preeclampsia, to see if it could catch uh, deterioration in status before waiting for clinic visits, all right? So bump one was was home blood pressure monitoring in those at risk of an HDP, hypertensive disorder in pregnancy, while bump two was home blood pressure monitoring in those who already had an HDP. So in bump two, they already had a hypertensive disorder in pregnancy. Well, what happened? Well, whether they were at risk of developing a hypertensive disorder or already had a hypertensive disorder in pregnancy, home blood pressure monitoring didn't really change anything clinically. It didn't change any clinical outcome. No, they didn't have a quicker diagnosis of hypertensive disorder in those at risk. And in those already with high blood pressure in pregnancy, they didn't find a deterioration any quicker by them checking it at home than they did in their regular clinic schedule. So bump one and bump two, again, two separate RCTs, both published in the same episode of JAMA on May the 3rd, 2022, both concluded that in these two different population types, home blood pressure monitoring didn't really have a big clinical advantage. It didn't change clinical outcomes. You got to go back to that original podcast on May the 4th, 2022 last year, because we go a lot more into depth on bump one and bump two, but I don't want to rehash that because we already did that. But if you're interested, after you listen to this episode, go back and listen to that one, because we explain why it likely did not make any clinical difference. All right, fine. That's antepartum. But now what about postpartum? Postpartum hypertensive management has also rightfully gotten a lot of attention, and the data is kind of all over the place there as well. I want to cover two studies that focused on medical therapy for postpartum hypertension first, before we talk about home blood pressure monitoring, all right? Because think about it. For postpartum hypertension, I mean, there's two main camps here, right? Aggressive treatment before they go home. And remember, you don't have to wait for them to be 160 over 110. The the evidence-based recommendation is we don't want them to escalate. We want to treat them now that the fetus is no longer a concern because, well, the baby's born, um, to start treatment at a blood pressure of 150 uh, over 100. That's persistent postpartum. Okay, that's okay to treat that. Now, historically, you're like, well, how do you want to treat that? Because they're going to diurese and their blood pressure is going to drop and I don't want to bottom them out. Okay, I get that, but that actually doesn't make sense. I'm going to explain why in a minute. Because blood pressure can drop initially, but then it rises. It tends to peak later on. That's going to be one clinical pearl I'm going to give you in a minute. So there's two camps here for postpartum hypertensive management. Aggressive treatment early on, and then the second camp is outside of you know bringing them back to clinic for for clinic based observation is having the patient check blood pressures at home. All right, so that's the focus of our episode. So two big camps: hey, you had hypertension in pregnancy, you delivered now, wahoo, we dodged a billet, but everyone's happy. Um, but we're going to treat your blood pressure uh, if it gets to persistent one fifty over hundred, uh, and then we want you to check blood pressure at home. All right. Now, before we talk about the home monitoring, let me focus on these two publications that are recent regarding what is the best way to treat postpartum hypertension. Now, I've done this on a previous episode as well, but the first study I want to focus on is by Do et al., which was out of the Green Journal in 2022, right? So I'm going to give you that reference in a little bit more detail in just a minute. But this assessed whether readmission for hypertension by six weeks postpartum differed between two different medications that patients were given at discharge. 
nifedipine or procardia, and labetalol, right? So everyone loves labetalol, or you should, and tapartum because it's got a lot of data. It seemed to work very well. But what about nifedipine for postpartum? So this was a study, again, from the Green Journal in 2022 by Du et al. that looked to see if patients stayed out of the hospital based on what they were given, whether it was nifedipine or labetalol. This whole concept of aggressive treatment of postpartum hypertension is evidence-based because while there may be an initial period of diuresis, blood pressure usually peaks postpartum between days four and six. And of course, that's a time when the majority of patients are already discharged. So they can look great initially as third space fluid starts to mobilize and they have some diuresis. But then by time of discharge, once they get home, blood pressure can actually peak. So by giving patients aggressive treatment, again, for persistent blood pressures of 150s over 100s, you try to prevent that from occurring, all right? So that's going to be a big deal when we talk about another medication, which is Lasix for mobilization of this fluid in the second study. But in the first study, we're going to talk about labetalol versus nifedipine. And then we're going to talk about the effect of Lasix, furosemide, in the immediate postpartum period. All right, which one is better or do they both work equally well? So we're going to cover labetalol, nifedipine, and then in the other publication, we'll tackle Lasix or furosemide. This was published on October 2022. Again, the lead author is Samantha Doe, and the title of this publication is Postpartum Readmission for Hypertension After Discharge on Labetalol or Nifedipine. This cohort study included patients with delivery info from 2006 to 2017 who were discharged from the hospital on nifedipine or labetalol and were included in a large national database. They identified patients' discharge medications based on failed outpatient prescriptions. Now, here's a big limitation of this. Yep, this was based on prescriptions that were given at discharge, prescriptions that were filled, But there was no way to prove that the patients took this medication. So deal with that as a big limitation. Nonetheless, it's still pretty good because most of these patients said that they took the medication, although there was no way of proving that. I mean, you would assume if they filled it, they took it. But you know as well as I do that that's not always true. Well, nonetheless, they then looked to see who was readmitted in the first six weeks postpartum. This cohort did not include patients with chronic hypertension who did not have superimposed preeclampsia. Interestingly, they found that postpartum readmissions for hypertension were more frequent for patients discharged home on labetalol compared with nifedipine. More specifically, they found that readmissions for hypertension were more frequent for patients discharged on labetalol compared with nifedipine for both mild and severe hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. So the authors concluded that postpartum discharge on labetalol was associated with increased risk for readmission compared to those discharged on nifedipine. Remember, there are some issues with this, but still pretty good info, although they couldn't really prove that those patients took that medication to begin with. But it's something to consider. So labetalol, antepartum, and then postpartum, nifedipine. But wait, there's more. One of the things that could explain these findings was how the medications were dosed, right? So if you sent somebody home with a newborn on labetalol, BID, or TID, I mean, think about that. Who's going to take that? It's already hard to just focus on the baby, but you got to take a medicine twice a day or three times a day for efficacy. Whereas if you gave a procardia, like an nifedipine XL, that can cover the patient for a longer amount of time, taken once daily, 
that perhaps that's a compliance issue. So that's something that's possibly at play here, although, again, that wasn't able to be to be teased out. But compliance is a big factor here. But it's not just about labetalol or procardia, because there is also some evidence that postpartum Lasix, furosemide, in patients with hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, works extremely well. Next, let's review an RCT from 2021 from the journal Hypertension, which is out of the American Heart Association, that looked at Lasix, furosemide, for accelerated recovery of blood pressure postpartum in women with a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy. This study that focused on Lasix was released on May 2021 in the journal Hypertension, and the title is Furosemide for Accelerated Recovery of Blood Pressure Postpartum in Women with a Hypertensive Disorder of Pregnancy. This was a randomized controlled trial. This study is one of the largest trials conducted in patients with postpartum hypertension that's level 1 evidence. The authors performed a single-center, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial in women with hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. They evaluated whether a five-day course of 20 milligrams of oral Lasix was any better than placebo in managing postpartum hypertension. Patients with gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, and preeclampsia superimposed on chronic hypertension with or without severe features were included. The primary outcome of the study was the prevalence of persistent hypertension seven days postpartum and the number of days required to achieve resolution of that high blood pressure. Now, notice that it was blood pressure reviewed or evaluated at seven days postpartum. Why seven days? Because that's the important issue. Remember, there may be initial improvement postpartum as the fluid mobilizes, but blood pressure tends to rise between days four and seven. So that's why I said I like this study design because they looked right when the blood pressure should be peaking postpartum. And the idea is if you can prevent a lot of that fluid mobilization from staying in the pipes and staying in the tubes, aka the blood vessels, if we can eliminate that and help with sodium excretion, then you can prevent that volume overload that triggers the high blood pressure. So again, this was a five-day course of 20 milligrams of oral Lasix starting on the first day postpartum and then measuring blood pressure at day seven postpartum. All right, podcast family, listen to this because the results are pretty impressive. The prevalence of persistent elevated blood pressure at postpartum day seven was 60% less in the group that received Lasix compared to placebo. 60% less. Lasix or furosemide has been proposed to accelerate postpartum blood pressure recovery by reducing sodium resorption through the apical membrane of tubular epithelial cells in the thick ascending limb of the loop of Henle. This results in an increase in urinary sodium and water excretion. It's a diuretic of choice, remember, for patients with volume overload, pulmonary edema, and congestive heart failure. It does have an ability to quickly remove excess fluid from the body, and that's a big advantage in the setting of postpartum hypertension. As stated in an editorial that reviewed this publication, quote, large shifts of fluid occur due to sodium and water retention during the intrapartum and the immediate postpartum interval. This excess fluid volume can result in transient elevated in blood pressure or unmask postpartum preeclampsia. 
Also, patients with preeclampsia may not be able to compensate for the extra fluid volume due to already impaired sodium excretion as a result of reduced glomerular filtration, which can further increase the risk of persistent postpartum hypertension, end quote. As this editorial continues to say, quote, an immediate clinical implication that can be drawn from this trial is that a small dose of 20 milligrams of oral furosemide for five days postpartum started within the first 24 hours of delivery in patients with hypertension can reduce the prevalence of persistent elevated blood pressures and achieve faster optimization of blood pressure control. No significant adverse outcomes were seen with Lasix, and it appears to have been well tolerated by the studied participants. End quote. So there you go, podcast family. See, we just covered one publication that said, hey, nifedipine is the way to go. And this publication that I kind of favor, I like this because I'm a big fan of getting that excess fluid off. Uh, plus, the patients just feel better because you reduce their, their, their edema in their lower extremities of giving Lasix 20 milligrams starting at 24 hours of delivery and then extending it for five days definitely does have a role to prevent blood pressure exacerbations or rises at day seven. So again, I'm not telling you which one to do. I'm just telling you both seem to be evidence-based. You can continue labetalol. You can keep doing that. It's just a, a compliance issue because it's multiple times during the day that it must be taken. So labetalol, okay. Procardia, okay. Possibly better compliance and seems to keep patients out of the hospital better than labetalol by six weeks. And then you have this study that shows that low-dose Lasix orally for five days can prevent that blood pressure spike on postpartum day seven. Oh man, I'm told that I'm 20 minutes into this episode and I haven't even gotten into the article that we're supposed to cover. <laughs> all right, so let's get into this next, all right? So what do we just do? As a quick recap, we talked about bump one and bump two. Does home blood pressure monitoring improve clinical outcomes antepartum? Doesn't seem to, based on those two RCTs. And then for postpartum blood pressure management, we just covered acute treatment, whether that's labetalol, procardia, or in this study that showed the benefit of Lasix. Well, now let's get to what we really meant to talk about, which is this new systematic review from the Green Journal, the title of which is Postpartum Home Blood Pressure Monitoring, a Systematic Review. The lead author is Dale Steele. This new publication just came out as an EPUB on June the 13th, 2023. And the authors sought to assess what was the effectiveness of postpartum home blood pressure monitoring compared to just blood pressure checks in the clinic. So this is exactly what bump one and bump two did, but now on the postpartum side, all right? So again, talking about the utility of blood pressure monitoring as a way to prevent maternal morbidity or mortality. The thought is, of course, hey, if, you, if your blood pressure gets really whack, then call somebody so we can prevent you from having a stroke. That's, that's the main thing right? Uh, or from having a, a uh, you know, postpartum eclamptic seizure. That's what we're trying to do. But is that evidence-based? And before I give you the answer, uh, I have nothing wrong with hope checking blood pressure at home as long as the patient knows how to do it. And I mentioned this in the, in the May 2022 publication that a blood pressure check, I mean, that's a medical test. That's a diagnostic test. And so I, I don't like just telling patients, hey, go to CVS, pick up a blood pressure machine, knock yourself out, check your blood pressure. You've got to be, they have to be educated on how to do that right? How to sit, uh, not to take a caffeinated beverage within 30 minutes. Don't take your blood pressure after running up the stairs, for heaven's sakes. I mean, there's got to be a right way to do it. 
uh, and how to use the right blood pressure cuff. I mean, it has to be the right size. So there's a whole bunch of possible errors that can be done if they don't have the education piece that comes with it, all right? And the second part of that is that home blood pressure checks are only as good if they have an open line of communication to the healthcare provider. I mean, what good is it if a patient sees that her home blood pressure taken correctly is 200 over 120, but she has no access to a physician? So as we get into this publication, they're going to talk about that, that home blood pressure alone can be okay. Again, that's conservative care. But you see how there may be a disconnect there to it being effective because the link there is they have to have access to report that to someone. They have to have access to a physician, to a nurse, to a PA, to a midwife. So it's just, it's good, but it's not enough to reduce mortality. No, so I've already spilled the beans there. All right, so I'm going to tell you how this study was done. But the short answer is it doesn't seem to really change clinical outcomes. And and that's heartbreaking. But having said that, it's okay to be conservative. It's okay to tell patients to do that. However, we have to know that that there's there's not really any data that says that's any better for the patient compared to regular old clinic checks. We're still going to do that, okay? So this is not one or the other. It's not like you check your blood pressure at home or you come into the clinic. I mean, this is in addition to coming into the clinic. So I I got to set that out right at the start. And remember I said earlier on, that there's a difference between being conservative and being evidence-based, and you would hope that they'd be the same thing. But in this case, they are not. I'm all for being conservative. I don't think this hurts anybody outside of maybe giving somebody some anxiety uh, because you know they have to check their pressure, and if they get something off, it can freak them out a little bit. But for the most part, it's okay. It's conservative care. But to say that the evidence supports that it reduces mortality, it's just not there. So I'm going to explain that as we go on. Okay, this study included randomized trials, non-randomized comparative studies, and single-arm studies that evaluated the effects of postpartum home blood pressure monitoring up to one year, and that was with or without telemonitoring on patients' maternal and infant outcomes, healthcare utilization, and harm outcomes. Now, this was, again, to see if it really helped reduce any kind of maternal morbidity or mortality. 13 studies, 3 RCTs, 2 non-randomized comparative studies, and 8 single-arm studies met eligibility criteria. All comparative studies enrolled participants with a diagnosis of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Remember, this was done as a systematic review. Right smack in the middle of the publication, the authors do state the big limitation of this review, and they state that the evidence base is just limited. I mean, it only had five comparative studies, none of which was powered to detect differences in patient outcomes, specifically evidence for the effectiveness of home blood pressure monitoring compared with usual clinic-based care was, quote, sparse, end quote. After a detailed review of each study type and taken holistically as a systematic review, the authors concluded, quote, We found insufficient evidence to assess whether home blood pressure monitoring reduces severe maternal morbidity or mortality or reduces existing racial disparities in morbidity and mortality or to assess the potential harms associated with home monitoring, end quote. Wow, I mean, that's kind of sad, right? Basically, they found, hey, not enough evidence to say does anything. But they do say this, and here's the key word here, quote, probably, (laughs) that's the key word. 
As the author stated in the discussion, quote, home blood pressure monitoring probably improves, you all catch that? Probably, probably improves overall blood pressure ascertainment. In other words, determination of high blood pressure in the early postpartum period, end quote. But does that change any outcomes? There's no evidence that it does. Again, there's no evidence that it's necessarily harmful, but it doesn't seem to really prevent any severe maternal morbidity or mortality based on the evidence. And that's because the evidence is just limited. That's why it's okay to be conservative because it doesn't seem to overall hurt the patient. We just don't have any real evidence because it is, quote, sparse. The authors do go on to say that maybe, potentially, this has a way to reduce racial disparities in patients who either don't want to go back to a clinic or can't. Perhaps this is at least a surrogate of trying to give them some kind of blood pressure assessment. But again, the evidence is really weak even to that. So kind of a disappointing systematic review because we thought, oh, for sure, hey, if you checked home blood pressures, we're going to find issues before they happen. That was a premise of bump one and two. And just like bump one and two, this systematic review from June 2023 says that or seems to say that there just it just doesn't seem to prevent any real morbidity or mortality by home blood pressure checks in the immediate postpartum interval. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. I feel like we've covered a lot in this episode. We covered home blood pressure monitoring antepartum, and then in the postpartum interval, and even medications of choice to try to prevent high blood pressure exacerbations in the postpartum interval, especially the immediate postpartum interval. As always, we hope you found this podcast educational and helpful and clinically applicable. We're thankful for you, and we're glad that you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.